Our scripture reading this afternoon is from the book of Acts. We continue in our study of Acts. We'll be reading chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. In our bulletin, we, we forgot to update there. We read 1 through 7 last Lord's Day, and today we read verses 8 through 15. Hear God's true and eternal word. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suburned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word. And let us... Dear congregation, a story is told that after the gospel had fruitful effects in a region in Africa, that in an Indian tribe, many believers became very conversant in prayer. And they began the habit of going to their own places in the thicket or in the woods where they would have their closet prayers. So that it became very visible when they were active in their prayer because everyone's location created little paths in the savanna grass toward those little secret places. But it also became visible when one or another became negligent in prayer because their path would start getting grown over. And it became somewhat of a way of one brother encouraging another where one would have to come to one whose path was overgrown and he would say, Brother, the grass grows on your path. Now today, as we look at this portion where Stephen is singled out by this group of men and brought to the council, we will have before us a living example of what we saw last time where the apostles were saying that given the trouble that the church has, 
regarding finances and regarding distributing those finances to the people in need. Um, It was brought to the apostles' attention that that had to be taken care of. And the apostles realized we, we cannot spread ourselves more thin than we are. And they made it very clear we cannot leave the Word of God. And then after they gave the solution of choosing seven men and gave the characteristics of those men, that they would be of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. As soon as as that was um, announced, they said in verse 4 of chapter 6, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And we saw then how God's Word is, is making this very clear for the church. This is, these are the beginning days of the church, and God is singling out these two graces, two, um, two aspects, you could say, of the Christian life that are absolutely the priority of the ministry. Everything else is subservient to that. Remember also that reality. Even if there's a problem, the way we solve that problem is to continue putting prayer and preaching or prayer and the Word as central, as the most important things the church does. We we saw last Lord's Day especially the Word. Why is the Word so important? Because not a single soul will be saved without it. No one will know what it means to be a Christian without the Word. You cannot be converted without hearing God's Word. You won't know who Jesus is. You won't know that you're someone who needs Jesus, that you have your sins upon you, and you will not know that Jesus is the one who died for sinners. The Word is central. There's no salvation. There's no hope without the Word. We saw a little bit of why prayer is important, and today we're going to see more. We saw that prayer is important because as we preach the Word, we need God's help. It is His Word, and we need His power. Souls to be converted will not be converted by by well-prepared sermons in and of themselves. The Spirit must act in the heart, and we need God for that. When we pray, we are confessing this. We are saying, Lord, we, we, we are insufficient for these things. We need thy help. And we looked at prayer being central in that way, but today, and this is why we start with our first point, why prayer is a priority, because we have before us a living example of how prayer is essential. Not only in this way that that as the word goes forth, we need prayer to help the preacher, we need prayer to help us to hear the word we need prayer to be better christians we need prayer to be christians but now we're going to find that we need prayer because to be a christian is dangerous and this is perhaps one of the greatest element that has not been so clear in the minds of many through the ages who have professed their faith and when difficulties have come They have gone out. They have gone back to the world. They have quit their confession. Remember, of all those soils, three of them, in essence, are those people. They they began to have an interest. But two of those, one of them had no interest. The birds came and plucked away. But the other two, the, the um, the, the seed started to grow. But one 
because they preferred the world, they left. The other, because affliction came, they left. You need to understand this. And this is where preaching is never false propaganda. To be a Christian is dangerous. Stephen is the first martyr of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ following the ascension of the Lord Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. Even as I say this, I know um, Abel was the first martyr, period. See, Abel went to worship God and it was dangerous for him to do it. Cain killed him. And now we have Stephen and we've already been seeing the danger. There have been those two elements of persecution, Peter and John first, but then they were released. And then all the apostles, and they even spoke of of slaying them. Verse 33 of chapter 5, they took counsel to slay them. So it's already in their minds to do away with these men. But then God used Gamaliel to protect them at that moment. And now there's Stephen. So this is the third persecution in terms of, of cycles of persecution. And this man will die. All of next chapter is the sermon that he preaches, the speech that he gives. But the very last portion of chapter 7, it is Stephen being stoned to death. And so what we have before us is this. Why why are we to pray? Why should the elders give themselves to prayer? It's like our ministry has 50% prayer, 50% the word. That is what we do. This is what we'll give ourselves to. Because if you're a Christian, you might die for being a Christian. And and the the reality that this sounds almost like, what, what do you mean, Pastor? I've been in this church for 20 years, and no one's died for being a Christian. Yes, but you've been in this church for 20 years. Maybe you've been a Christian for 30 years, but there have been thousands and millions of Christians dying all throughout the world. Are you aware of that? Stephen is only the first. And what starts, even in the book of Acts, will be persecution, 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 persecution. All the way to the end, it is with the death of Paul who's persecuted. And that's the astonishing thing. Paul is at this sermon as an unconverted Pharisee called Saul. The the text is silent about him, but we know he's here. When, When we hear of the stoning of Stephen, Saul will be the one receiving everybody's cloak. He is like a leader among all of these men. And, and what we have before us, beloved, is, is a living example of why it is important for us to give ourselves to prayer. Because Christians might die. It is dangerous to be a believer. I, I've said that before. I remember one, one, one missionary telling me this was a constant line he would repeat. Johnny... Being a Christian is not a vacation. It is a battle. And what happens in battles? You might die. Literally. Not not just a battle against sin and and we need to mortify sin and we speak of dying in in a more of a spiritual way. But Stephen died physically. He received, boys and girls, at the end of the sermon that he preaches in chapter 7, people were not applauding him. They were picking stones and throwing stones at him. Can you imagine what it means to be among people so hateful, so evil, that they want to kill you? And what are you doing? You are 
preaching peace. You are someone who's part of that group that sees widows in need, and you sell things and you give it to the widows. Stephen is one who did great wonders and miracles among the people. He's one of these who is healing those who are sick. We don't want those people dead. We need them all over. They're, they're hospitals that would need these people. But these men who reject Christ say those people must die. And they kill Stephen. So that's why prayer is essential. And... and Even though these things aren't happening to our people right where we are, we need to have this vision and this reality because of two things. One is it is happening simply elsewhere. And the Bible has this principle that we are to remember those who are in chains. So to some degree, we need to do our homework. We need to get those magazines that are hard to look at. Voice of the Martyrs is one of them. There's Brother Andrew's ministry, Open Doors. That's another one. I confess, it is hard. It is hard to look through those magazines because you see the reality of suffering churches that were exploded, people with scars, pictures of people behind bars, and you can't see their eyes because those pictures can't circulate. But here and there you'll find addresses that you can literally write to some of these people. You'll find ways that you can hear about what's happening. Those are people right now who are suffering this way. And and we, the church out in the West and in places where to some degree there's great prosperity, great freedoms, we can so easily lose track of that. But we need to give ourselves to prayer because it is dangerous to be a believer in those places. And then the second reason is that it is dangerous to be a believer here as well. And persecution can happen at any given moment here as well. And the more you go to places that are dangerous and needy, in many ways you could be a martyr tomorrow if you go there. If you go to neighborhoods that are wholly taken by certain sects and religions that hate Christianity, and even if you go in an amicable way and in a loving way and distribute pamphlets, you might die if you're there at the wrong hour and the wrong time. It's not dangerous. It's not hard to be a martyr, even in America. And maybe there aren't that many because we're too scared to go to those places. We're being too guarded. But Stephen didn't leave Jerusalem because they wanted to kill him. Now, Jesus did teach that if we hear there's persecution, it's never wrong, it's actually right to to flee to other places. But the places that are hating Christ are the places that need to hear of Christ. So to some degree or another, the world needs brave believers who are wise and careful. Uh, You've heard me probably many times say we should never pursue persecution. That is unwise, that is wrong, that is even sinful. We're not supposed to go, hey, here I'm a Christian, and and find ways to to make people hate us. That's not suffering for the sake of Christ. I heard a sermon of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, many people are persecuted for their own foolishness and lack of wisdom, not for the sake of Christ or for the sake of righteousness. Those are the blessings in Matthew 5 of the Beatitude. You're, You're only blessed if you're persecuted for Christ's sake. 
Not for a political cause. Not for something that is Christless. And not for something that is just instigating people to hate you because you're saying things in a mean and angry way. So I'm not proposing any of that. But there are neighborhoods that need to hear about Jesus. And it's dangerous to go there. But how will they hear? Unless we go and we speak. And this is why we need prayer. Because it is dangerous. And someone might die. Like Stephen did. And this is the example we have. And before we go to the next um, point, I want to bring this out. Where are we learning this from? Who, who is it that's teaching us that prayer is central? It's these powerful apostles. It is men who can see someone lame for 40 plus years and make that man walk. It is these men who, who can deliver people of demons and who, who, who have this experience of being in jail. An angel comes and they're released. And they're the ones saying, we need to pray. See, as powerful as they were, they understood that that only came because of God's grace and help. In their power, they realized they needed God's power. And it's through this man, Stephen, that we, that we learned this. He, he needed this power. He needed this grace. We're going to see as we look, especially at third point that really focuses on Stephen, we will see that that was all born out of prayer, of a heart that was dependent on the Lord because that's what prayer is. The moment we pray, we are saying, Lord, I depend on Thee. I cannot provide my daily bread. I cannot provide my strength against temptation. I cannot forgive me of my sins. I can't stop sinning. I can't make the kingdom come. I can't do your will as it is in heaven here on earth. Lord, do it. Come. Thy will be done. Give me this day my daily bread. See, we're, we're confessing that we depend, that everything comes from God. And so if these men who were so powerful needed prayer, who do we think we are? that we could pray less. And look how Calvin puts it. He says, If the apostles, who were endowed with God's most excellent gifts, found it difficult, where does that leave us? It is as Paul exclaims, And who is sufficient for these things? 1 Corinthians 2.16 We cannot even have a good thought. God must provide it. We must be aware that we cannot proclaim the word easily unless we go about it right and so let us learn this lesson beloved we we have to keep our path to our place of prayer without allowing the grass to grow over which means you need to go several times during the day to the place of prayer and when we think of the examples biblically even even regarding these very apostles to corporate prayer to pray together with god's people Let us be able to say, I am giving myself to prayer. So we see why prayer is so necessary. Now, let us go to our second point, and we will look. um, In our second and third point, basically what we're doing here is looking at the basically the two groups of people. One is really a group of people. One is just one person, but he represents the people. All the apostles, all the church is represented by Stephen here. We only hear him here in the text. But there are these two sets of characters. 
The first, really what we see in them, even though they have this holy um, appearance, they are hypocrites. And we have the second man who has an angelic appearance. And he's holy. And so our second point is when hypocrites pretend to be holy. And our, set, our third is when believers are like angels. So the first is looking at those men who are accusing Stephen. The second is, third point is looking at Stephen. And so first of all, when hypocrites pre- pretend to be holy. But first let's look at who are these people that, that I'm speaking of? There, there's an introduction of a different people here. There's the addition of those that we knew from before, the, the Sadducees, the high priests, the scribes. They're present because in verse 12 it says that these people brought Stephen to the council. And this would be the Sanhedrin, which is made of Pharisees and Sadducees, scribes, the high priest. They're all there. But these other people are described in verse 9. And these are the ones who actually engaged Stephen in, in, a, in a debate. Um, there was not just a dialogue, it's clear, because it speaks of disputing with Stephen. And these are, in verse 9, called those of the synagogue of the Libertines, or freedmen. And then it adds, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia. Um, What all of these have in common is that all of these would be Jews who came from far away. And we've been talking about them. It was the widows of these very Jews who came because of Passover. They heard the gospel. They remained. And that's why there's a lot of poor people and needy people who are part now of the church. Those were the Hellenistic Jews. And now we have these Hellenistic Jews who are still only Jews. They're they're not converting, and they're part of the synagogues. The, The idea we get is that as these Jews come for those three times of the year, that every Jew, man at least, was ordered, if they they could bring their family, they could bring their wife. But if you were a man, you were ordered by God's word to be in Jerusalem at least three times a year in all of those main feasts. One of them was Passover. One was tabernacles. And this one, what we understand is that as these people came from these places, because they spoke the language of their locality, they would assemble in a synagogue of their speech. So we don't, we're not to understand that there's just one synagogue of the Libertines and all these people are part of it. More likely, there is a synagogue of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, of those of Cilicia and Asia, etc. Some of these might be grouped, we're not sure. But these are all men coming from, from the outer parts of Jerusalem. They speak these different languages. And the idea that you get is this. Why are they the ones interested in this debate with Stephen and not the very leaders who are right there? Well, they, they've already heard from Gamaliel that maybe it's better to wait. But they've already been engaging in debates and engaging in arrests. But now they're, they're somewhat calm about it. But these leaders from these other places, these men who came, they're concerned. And a lot of people point, some commentators 
point to the reality that when you would be a Jew that was outside of Jerusalem, maybe you would keep to certain rituals and teachings even more carefully. You would become almost like the hyper-conservative and the ones who were even more connected to all the traditions because you were far from Jerusalem and afraid of losing it all. And when they are here now and they're hearing Stephen, Stephen's a good debater and they engaged in this debate. So these, these are who these people are. But now why, why is it that I call them hypocrites pretending to be holy? Well, let's look at the holiness aspect first. And notice their concern has this holy um, intention, as it were. In verse 11, we see that they're concerned about Moses and God. They don't want Moses nor God to be spoken blasphemously. Um, and that's a holy concern. That's good. And then in verse 13, it says, This man ceased not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. They're concerned about the temple. That would be the holy place and the law of God. Those are holy concerns. So there's an aura of holiness in what these men have as a concern. But what we find to be their hearts is when we see their actions. And it's obvious that Luke found very likely very direct information and penned it down that these men are not holy. They're concerned about Moses and God, the law and the temple, and yet they have actually actually no fear of God in their hearts. Why? Because they are stirs of commotion they are instigators they are liars they are accusers falsely of this man and those are not holy things it's like one verse after another look at verse 11 then they suborned men which said and to suborn you could translate that bribe where this word doesn't necessarily mean that they paid money but it means to instigate secretly to persuade to secretly induce these men to take an action. That's a form of deception. That's a form of pressuring people to even to violence. Verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And that's when they came upon him. They took him, caught him, and brought him to the council. So there are people who are, are instigating. They're going to others and saying, look what we heard. This is what he's saying. This is what he's doing. And it wasn't true. They just wanted people angry um, at Stephen. And then verse 13, it says, And set up false witnesses, which said... It's almost like they, they heard of what happened to Jesus, that remember, the false witnesses didn't agree with each other. So the Sanhedrin didn't do their good work to find that witnesses would agree. They needed always two to agree. And in the case of Jesus, they didn't. But here they set up false witnesses which said, so there were plural witnesses saying the same thing. So this is how, how sly these men were. They, they knew that they needed to tell the lies to enough people so that when they came before the authorities, they would repeat those lies in harmony with each other. So this is why I mean these are, these are hypocrites trying to be holy. And that's, of course, the, the pure definition of hypocrisy is when you're trying to look like you're holy when you're really wicked, when you're evil. This is who these men were. 
Now, the important thing to understand, look, look at what these false witnesses says in verse 13. This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. What, what is it that they said about, that, that Stephen would have said about the holy place in verse 14? For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And, and this is what's always so dangerous, beloved. And this is where we need to be very wise. You know, people who are trying to deceive. The deceiving nature, uh, the, the deceiving nature of deception is that it uses a lot of truth. A lot of things that are good. But the lie is there embedded. Sometimes in a way that you can hardly notice. And that's what's deceptive about deception. And some people even listen to it and says, oh, it sounds okay. Because they, they saw enough truth. They're not being careful. They're not being perceptive. And they sometimes become part of that whole train of thought and belief system. But it's deceptive. It's unholy. It's unrighteous. What is it that Jesus said? In John 2.19, Jesus said this, Destroy this temple. Jesus never in His ministry said, I will destroy this temple. But He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it's very possible He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, in Matthew twenty six sixty one, when we see what the false accusers said about Jesus, they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. They, they got right that there would be a destruction. They got right that there would be a building, that there would be three days. But it was a lie that Jesus said, I will destroy or am able to destroy. And this is exactly what these false witnesses are saying that Stephen said about Jesus, that Jesus shall destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered us. And, and that's the second lie, because remember what Jesus said about the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, in the Sermon of the Mount, He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill it. And then remember the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus explaining what the law is. And not at any point he minimizes or desecrates or takes away from the law. He only explains it better. The Lord Jesus is exalting the law. He's the author of it. Why would he minimize it? Why, why, why would he do something to change the customs that Moses delivered us? Now, of course, we may be thinking, well, it's probably because at some point these, minister, the, these apostles and all were saying that we don't need sacrifices anymore. That is changing something because Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood. We don't need the, the blood of lambs and goats, etc. And, and they were referring to that, but that was the truth. And about the law... They never said anything contrary to it. So these are hypocrites who pretend to be holy. But let us go finally to our third point where we see when believers are like angels. 
Here's a man who is about to be martyred. He's with, with lions, as it were, all around. Wild animals, they seem to act like. They will, they will greet his sermon with a rain of stones. But this man, his face is like that of an angel. And at this point in the book of Acts, Luke will introduce four characters, four men, beginning with Stephen, whose, whose characters are exemplary because they are examples of Christ. They are imitators of Jesus. It is, it is this man, Stephen. Next we will see Philip, who will be as, as a deacon and then evangelist in his life and ministry. The next one will be Saul, whose conversion and whose name Paul will be used from there on will take his conversion and ministry will take the almost the totality of the book of Acts. And then another man in between there will be Cornelius. And we will see the whole conversion of his family. And, and through Cornelius, he will be the first representative of the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentile people. Always think of Cornelius as, as the first one of our kind, in a sense. Unless you have pure Jewish blood, or at least a little connection with, with Jewish people, Cornelius will be our first representative where the light is received by the Gentiles and fully embraced. And from there on, even the apostles understand salvation is for the Gentiles as well. So it's for you and me. Gentiles are everyone else who's not Jew. So let's start looking at this man whose face was like that of an angel. I want to emphasize this because when you live like a true believer in this world, you will look different. And I don't mean just your clothing. I do mean your appearance. We don't know exactly if it was the brightness of his faith, like something, face, something miraculous, or if it was simply his eye of compassion upon these people who hated him, if it was his sympathy for those souls. We, we can say a little bit about what that appearance was like, but let us speak of what we know this man was like he was full of faith number one twice we read this about him um, as soon as Stephen is named in verse 5 as one of the men who were chosen it says and the same pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen a man full of faith Imagine to read your name in a list of people, maybe the list of deacons in a church or elders in a church or, or a graduating class in a school. And, and after it says your name, full of faith. And of everybody else, there's not much more. Maybe, maybe saying that he was a proselyte of Antioch. But it just shows how he stood from this group of men who all had faith. But he's described as full of faith. And then in verse 8, and Stephen, now that we will hear about him in a longer discourse, Luke writes, full of faith. This man was full of faith. It wasn't little, it wasn't medium, it was great faith. The word full comes from a Greek word that means completeness. It means fullness. It's, 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 if our cup of faith is this big, it was full of faith. 
Now, it's not meaning that it was perfect faith, unfailing faith. It is not like a pristine faith without any kind of sin. It's not in that sense, but it's in, like I said, if, if, if this is the amount of faith that could fill our hearts, it was full. It was full of faith. He, he believed in Jesus as his Savior and Lord. He did not doubt. He did not think, could he be the Messiah or not? The faith is always directed that way, see? It's not, can he see that I'm his? It is not in the sense of, has he loved me? It is more in the sense of, is he the Son of God? Yes. Is he God and man? Yes. Was he sent by the Father? Yes. Did he die on the cross for sinners? Yes. 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 All about Jesus. He looked at Jesus and there was no doubt in his heart there was no wavering he wasn't looking for another savior because he knew there was no other he understood what peter said to those very um um, leaders that neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved beloved More than half the world are searching for their saviors. Maybe they've been presented Jesus and they're saying, no, there must be another. And they try to find it in drugs. They try to find it in sex. They try to find it in relationships in a degree. And they're seeking some accomplishment. They want to be found. They want to have a purpose. And they are lost. Because for them, it's not Jesus. And then there are those, of course, and our hearts should ache greatly. And I pray there may be many missionaries among us that will come and reach peoples. There are peoples who have never heard of Jesus. So they're thinking it's Muhammad. They're thinking it's Buddha. They're thinking it's through all of their inner meditations. But they're not saved. They're lost. And we know the truth that neither is there salvation in any other name if we fully believe this beloved we cannot go to sleep without praying a prayer lord save souls everywhere and if you know your neighbor and you know he's not a christian there should be an ache in your heart and a heartbeat for this neighbor and you must mention his name in prayer and you must go knock at that door and give him something invite him Invite him to church. Invite him to your home for a dinner. And he will see you pray and read the Bible. And then you, he might come to church one day and see you here among believers. Does our heart ache for people who don't know Jesus? A heart full of faith will. This is this man, um, Stephen. These people are ready to kill him, but he will give them the gospel. And there will be what we could possibly argue the most important conversion this world has ever seen. The great persecutor of the church, Paul, will hear the sermon that we will see next. So even though his, his life ended, we see a result that is heavenly. Paul was saved. Yes, after an encounter with Jesus, but you can be certain everything in God's word was used to convert his heart, including this prayer. Secondly, not only was he full of faith, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And that is also repeated two times. Um, In verse 3, this is the qualification. All of these men who were chosen had to be full of the Holy Ghost. So we know that Stephen had that but then as we read the sermon 
um, in, in, verse, in verse 55, um, when they're ready to kill Stephen, in verse 55 it says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. That's when he saw that glorious a manifestation of God when he's about to die. And it said there, he was full of the Holy Spirit. This is the second thing we know about him. And, and this is how you should think of this. How, why did his face look like that of an angel? These are the answers. He was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, it is really to have an awareness of everything the Spirit's ministry is. Just to make a list, not too long ago we had a sermon where we looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we saw things like that, that we're, we're used to understanding and knowing. Sometimes it might be hard to make this whole list at once, but these were the things we saw, that the Holy Spirit comforts us. That means He's our advocate. He comes right alongside us and helps us. He's our teacher. He illuminates us. He convicts us and shows where we have sin and what those sins are and that Christ is the one who can forgive him. He sanctifies us. He gives us gifts for the ministry. He guides us. He protects us. He promotes the unity among believers. And we also saw that he's the one who adopts us and reveals to us that we are children of God. And we call him Abba, Father. It's the Spirit that does that in our hearts. And to be filled with the Spirit means, in essence, that you will, you will have an experiential um, understanding and awareness of these very things. And it may be different things. Like, if, if you are very convicted of your sin and you feel very troubled that you grieved the Lord, that is the Spirit grieving you, and that is an element of His f- filling you with Himself. Be encouraged with that conviction. If you're being guided the way you should go because you're reading in God's word and you find, oh, this is what I should do because this is how I can please God better. That is the spirit indwelling you, guiding you and strengthening you. To be filled with the spirit is in essence to be a mature Christian or a Christian who's in the process of maturity because only the Spirit is the one who does that to mature us. And when I say mature us, you can understand what that means in a practical way. That means you becoming more like Jesus. For a Christian to grow, all it means is for you to be more like Jesus day by day. Let me, let me just give you a list of vocabularies from God's Word. And all of these are describing someone filled with the Spirit. If I were to use vocabulary from Ephesians 6, I would say that to be filled with the Spirit is to be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6.10. It is to be strong in the power of God, God's might. It is to put the whole armor of God. Someone filled with the Spirit, he will stand against the wiles of the devil. He, he will stand with the truth um, tied around his loins. He will have the breastplate of righteousness. He will bear the shield of faith. He will have the helmet of salvation. See, that's the awareness. God has saved me. He's given me his righteousness. I have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word. 
and I will be defended by God from these darts of the enemy because I have the shield of faith. Someone who is filled with the Spirit has his feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All all I'm doing is using the vocabulary of Ephesians 6. Every Christian should be this way. Every Christian should be filled with the Spirit. If I use the vocabulary of Romans 12, those first two verses, a man who is filled with the Spirit has presented his body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Not to the world, but to God. My life is a sacrifice to God, not to friends, not to the lusts of this world, not to the pleasures of this life. Not to the pride of life. How many people are offering their bodies as a lifting sacrifice to those things? That's not being filled with the Spirit. But when you are not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that is being filled with the Spirit. With the vocabulary of Romans 6, to be filled with the Spirit is someone who yields his members as instruments of righteousness unto God, which means that you are a servant of obedience and of righteousness and not of sin or Satan, of disobedience. Paul there speaks of of, of our members and that we will either be servants of God in obedience or of Satan in sin. The unbeliever is this one. But the believer, and the more filled with the Spirit you are, more yielding you are of your members, of your whole body, as an instrument of righteousness. And in the last vocabulary section I could use is from 1 Corinthians 6.20. The one who is filled with the Spirit, knows that he was bought with a price, that he is no longer his own. Therefore, he glorifies God in his body and in his spirit, which are God's. See, these are all different ways to explain the same thing. Someone who's filled with the Spirit. And this is who Stephen was. And thirdly, we can also say he was full of power. This is what the text says. It's Stephen full of faith and Power And the text immediately gives an example of that power that he did great wonders and miracles among the people. And so because he was filled with the Spirit, he had great power. And that power was used of God to make people realize this man knows what he's saying. Maybe this man ought to be believed. And you can be certain that there were effects of this sermon. We, we know of Paul. You wonder how long it lingered. You wonder if in, in the mind of Paul, he never could erase from his mind this face of a man like an angel's and the words he spoke that seemed like heavenly. Well, one day God used all that God had ministered to Paul and he was converted. His power was not to show any power about Stephen, but just to show that the things Stephen did were true. Matthew Henry says this, Those that are full of faith are full of power. Because by faith the power of God is engaged for us. His faith did so fill him that it left no room for unbelief. See see the idea of having this much faith? Well, then there's no unbelief. He never doubted if, if Jesus was really the Messiah, if he really did die for sinners. 
There was no room for unbelief and made room for the influences of divine grace. By faith, we are emptied of self and so are filled with Christ, who is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Now, when Matthew Henry is saying that by faith we are emptied of self, in essence, he's putting here together the reality of repentance together with faith. If you truly believe in Jesus, you're saying, I don't believe in anything else. I don't believe in myself, and I don't want sin anymore. I hate sin. I want Jesus to be my Savior. Lord, forgive me of all my sins. You're you're emptied of self because you have true faith. Now, Some could be tempted to say, well, fine, this man could have power because he could heal the sick. Maybe he delivered people. He did these miracles among the people, but I can't. We we are cessationists. We don't believe that these miracles, that I could actually touch someone and say, be healed in the name of Christ. It's true that we don't have that power, but we do have power. And I brought this element before, and I want to just bring this in here because this is very powerful and very important. If you are filled with the Spirit, you have a power like nothing else in this world. And even though we live in days in which we don't have the power to heal someone, I, I wish we did, we can go to the God who heals, and He does. We, we hear of miraculous healing. When I say this, I'm never meaning that there cannot be miracles, but we all pray together that God will hear, heal so-and-so or provide for so-and-so, and God does it. So we do believe God can do that, but how can you show power? How can you be full of power? There are two ways, really. It is your holiness, and it is your good works. When I say good works, I'm meaning your holiness in loving people there are things that you can do that Peter Paul all these people couldn't you can't touch a sick person and heal them you should pray for them and believing that God could heal them but you can pray earnestly for them you can visit them you can send love through cards through money through gifts through food and you can bring them before the throne of God so that when you meet them they even know you've been there with their names and that's powerful see our shadow no longer has the effect of Peter's shadow when he passed through those masses of people that that is a power that we don't have but we have a power that Peter didn't we can get on our cars And we can visit the poor and minister to their needs. We can go to the widows and care for them. We can go to those who are in prison and have a ministry to those who are behind bars. And we can go to our friends in need all in the same day. And then we can get an airplane the next day and go to those lands where people are in prison and needs brave believers to go tell them about Jesus. And we can send money And immediately it goes to ministers and to missionaries in these places. That's a power that Christians should show. And we will be acting, as it were, like angels when we do it.
And then I could still add full of wisdom. We, we see that this is also what he had um, because they couldn't even dispute with Stephen. And the men who had to be chosen were full of wisdom. I'm just going briefly through this because I just want to come to, to the very end. How can you achieve these things? I'm not preaching about how godly this man is just to be an example for us to gaze upon, but it really is an example for us to follow. And how can we be full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of power? I just want to end in how I began. Let us pray. Do you see how central prayer is? We need the Lord. Let us yearn for these very graces. All of these things I've been saying can be yours through prayer. Pray for faith. Pray for the Holy Spirit. After the Lord Jesus gave that little speech of knocking and it will be opened, seeking and you shall find, and asking and it will be given, the very last thing after he spoke of us as fathers and how we give what our children want, he said, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So that if we don't have this filling of the Spirit, one reason is we're not asking. Because Jesus said to ask and you'll receive it. This wisdom, this faith, this power, we need God to give it. And so, beloved, I just end with this. Um, Is the grass growing on your path? Do you have a place of prayer? And and is the floor somewhat with with a little mark that you go there often? Do you have a book of prayer? And when if you if you catalog your prayers, when was the last time that you placed an entry? When have you gone to your closet of prayer and closed the door and come before the Lord who is in secret and hears your prayers? Could you say you are someone who gives yourself to prayer when you think of the corporate prayer of the body of Christ? If there are a group of ladies who pray, do you go there often? If there are a group of men who pray, do you go there often? If the church meets to pray, do you give yourself to that? Do you see the centrality of prayer in your life? These things won't just come. We need to pray. Stephen was a man of prayer because he depended and trusted his Savior. When you and I pray, this is what we're saying. We trust and believe in our Savior. And I need you, Lord Jesus. Help me. Help me, Father, through Christ. And your face will be like that of an angel's. In the joy, in the gladness. And I have heard and I have seen, even in terms of an aura, there are men who are so close to the Lord and women that you seem to see it glow when you look at them. Like Stevens. And again, maybe veiled, not in a miraculous way, but it's there. You see it in the glitter of their eye. You see it in that, in that smile that seems to say, I love you, before they even say it. 
And when they give you that handshake or that hug, you, you feel this, this person loves me. He cares. It's like an angel. You know, to say an angel is really just speaking of heavenly. And beloved, I pray that you and I would desire to be like heavenly beings upon this earth. It needs it. And that we would let the light of the gospel shine, the light of Christ shine, not just through our appearance, but through our words and through our actions. And we need prayer. We can't do it alone. We have no strength. But God answers those prayers. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, Lord, we we must say how thankful we are that Thou hast given many hundreds of years of peace in this nation where what Stephen is suffering is not yet the danger that we incur in. But Lord, we, we do see elements of persecution rising in our nation social, financial. And we plead, Lord, that we would be brave, that we would see how we must give ourselves to prayer given these dangers. But we realize there are brothers and sisters in places where the danger of suffering the way of Peter or Stephen is present this very day. Lord, be with them. Comfort them. Be with widows who have lost um, their husbands. Be with husbands and wives who have lost their children or children who have lost their parents. Be with those who are behind bars. Help us, Lord, to find ways to minister to them. Bless the ministries of open doors and of um, other ministries, Lord, that, that go to the lands where persecution is occurring, the voice of the martyrs. Be with their missionaries. But help us, Lord, to also be ready as believers, as professing Christians, to suffer for the sake of Christ to whatever degree that would be in thy providence. Help us to know, Lord, that is a danger that could be possible, but that we are ready for it in a spiritual way because of our love for Jesus. We prefer Jesus than the treasures of this world and even the safety of our lives. And we would rather forsake the world than to forsake our Savior. Lord, may Christians in our own congregation be made of this very kind of, of, of faith. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.